recruiter told me, don't take a bunch of stuff with you. You won't need it. The Air Force will issue you everything you need, and you won't have anywhere to store it. So don't take anything. My Navy veteran dad echoed his advice. At 19, I didn't have a whole lot. Let's see, there was the used red Ford two-door hardtop that I still had a year's worth of payments on to the bank, a portable stereo record player, some books, and a used TV set that didn't work very well. I slept on the floor of my efficiency apartment in northern Illinois in a Boy Scout sleeping bag sewn together years before by my mother. As I had no furniture and Renting the apartment unfurnished saved me $25 a month. At 19 and facing the draft as a college dropout in 1969, who needed furniture? Taking the khaki uniform-clad recruiter's words to heart, I didn't take much. The clothes on my back and a few toiletries in a cheap plastic gym bag left over from high school days. The Plano, Illinois High School Reaper's Insignia in purple and white on its cracked side. The bag had been sitting in my former bedroom in my parents' home for a couple of years unused, so it no longer smelled of its mission, that of transporting week-old, sweat-soaked jockstrap and physical education uniform to and from the high school locker room for its weekly laundering. That bag would go on after returning from basic military training, to ride in the trunks of several used cars, toting socket wrenches, screwdrivers, jumper cables, oil wrench filters, and other impedimenta necessary to keep a working-class kid's car on the road. But that's another story. For working-class young men in the United States, and I suspect in other nations, times, and cultures as well, the military has always served as an introduction to new places, sights, and experiences. It was no exception for me. At 19, I thought I was pretty worldly. After all, I'd had a year at the University of Illinois, one of the best public universities in the land, where I'd spent most of my time playing cards, drinking beer, and chasing girls. The rest I'd wasted, as Louis Armstrong famously once said. Unfortunately for my grades, those avocations didn't leave much time for studying, which the university deemed far more important than did I. With a grade point slightly below that necessary to maintain my academic good standing, not to mention my full-ride scholarship, which was a critical need for a kid whose dad worked in a factory, I left Champaign and the dormitories for a summer factory job and an unknown future, other than facing the certainty of the military draft with the loss of my student deferment. Three months working on the Caterpillar Tractor Company welding line as a United Auto Worker union guy proved to me that I wasn't cut out to spend my life blowing black snot out of my nose from the welding fumes, all the while cursing the molten slag which got past the heavy gloves to burn through the long sleeves, leaving the scars still on my forearms. Nope. Enough of that midnight to 8 a.m. factor shift. I left to take a job as an assistant manager in a retail store. Not quite as much money, longer hours, but at least I wasn't breathing soot and welding fumes all night long. 
Nine months later, the Selective Service System notice came in the mail, inviting me to take a physical examination, courtesy of the United States of America, to see if I was fit enough to serve. In 1969, with over half a million troops in Vietnam, damn near everyone was fit enough to serve. Facing induction, my choices were to enlist or be drafted. All of you would-be draftees left the country for sanctuary in Canada, but with my dad and all my uncle's veterans, that wasn't a consideration for me. Most of my high school buddies were already serving, as 19 was the prime age group to be drafted. Several were in the Army, a couple in the Marines, one in the Navy, and four of my closest friends in the Air Force. After making the rounds of the recruiters, I liked the Air Force one the best. I hated the idea of four years of active duty, but what else was I going to do with the next four years of my life? Properly cautioned by the recruiter to pack lightly, dropped off by my parents, I boarded the commuter train in Aurora for the 45-minute ride into downtown Chicago and the MAPS. MAPS, Military Entrance Processing System, home of the draft physicals and military induction center, site of the infamous saying, bend over and smile, where the docs and their assistants rudely poked, prodded, and processed hundreds of young men daily. Since I had a few weeks before been pronounced properly fit, no indignities for me. Just take the oath, swearing allegiance, and promising faithful duty to the Constitution of the United States. I became Airman Basic, Enyart, AF 68087757, no longer just Citizen Enyart. As the sole Air Force enlistee, I stood apart from the draftees, nine to the Army and one to the Marine Corps, none of whom looked happy. Me, smug and taking charge of my fate while they were subject to the whims of the draft. An hour later, on an O'Hare Airport-bound bus for my first airplane flight, my first trip to Texas, my first journey west of the Mississippi, other than a visit to the St. Louis Zoo as a six-year-old, and a few days' visit to Sioux Falls, South Dakota. My first experience having people scream in my ear for no apparent reason at all. Arriving in San Antonio, Texas, near midnight, after a brief layover in St. Louis, where the TWA flight picked up a few civilians and a dozen more Air Force recruits, we were met by a couple of uniformed men who politely escorted us to the Blue Air Force bus, bound a few miles to Lackland Air Force Base. The politeness ended once the bus doors closed. The charm and salesmanship of the recruiters ended with shouts of drill instructors. For the next couple of days, we were not only no longer civilians, we weren't even airmen. We were rainbows. So-called because we hadn't been issued drab green fatigues yet. Just a bright yellow t-shirt with U.S. Air Force emblazoned in black letters on its chest. We wore the t-shirt with whatever civilian pants and shoes we'd arrived in. Thus, we were multicolored rainbows, not fatigue-clad airmen. The next morning, we were paid a few dollars and marched to the base exchange, where we were told what to buy. Soap, soap dish, a few other toiletries, and a small box of Air Force stationery to write letters home or to our girlfriends on. To the BX barbershop where we were shorn of hair by a clipper-wielding, grim-faced civilian who made short work 
of reducing our glorious hair to a near-shaven stubble, for which we were required to pay him 85 cents, all the while clad in rainbow attire. The rainbow of clothing subjecting us to the chance of airmen about to graduate from basic training. Rainbow, rainbow, don't be blue. Two more days and I'll be through. Sung by smartly marching formations. Each airman perfectly aligned, shortest to tallest, right to left, denoted our lowly status in military hierarchy. The drill instructor kindly advised us to buy the 8x10 size letterhead, not the smaller 5x7, as we had to fit everything we owned on top of that box. Huh? What is he talking about? Nonetheless, we all purchased the preferred style. March to clothing issue, scowling supply clerks hurriedly issued us three sets of jungle green fatigues, two sets of khaki tan 1505s, one set blue summer weight uniform, one set winter weight blue uniform, one green field jacket with liner, one winter weight blue overcoat, one blue saucer hat, one blue flat cap, and two fatigue ball caps, one pair of combat boots, one pair of chucka boots, and one pair of low-quarter shoes. That's dress black shoes to you civilians. All stuffed into a duffel bag, weighing what seemed like a hundred pounds, as the screaming drill sergeants urged his rainbows to double time to their open bay World War II-era barracks. Although it had been in the 40s when I left Chicago, the unsheltered Texas sun and San Antonio humidity, creating 90-degree temperatures with 90% humidity, made the sweat pour as the pace quickened. The two-story barracks featured a row of bunk beds on either side of a center aisle. Each bunk bed had a plain military-issue footlocker on either end. The junior drill instructor, calmly showed us how to properly fold each newly issued item so all fit in the military locker's confines. The stationary box, properly placed flush top left of the lift-out shelf. All personal effects must fit in or on top of the stationary box, he told us. Anything that does not fit there must be placed in your luggage and will be placed in the locked storage room, to which only I have a key. You won't get any of that back until you graduate. My entire 19 years civilian life reduced to fitting in or on a red, white, and blue box of stationery, 8 by 10 by 1 inch in size. Luckily, my Bulova 9 transistor radio, just larger than a pack of cigarettes, which I wouldn't be allowed to turn on for several more weeks, fit nicely on top of the box. Inside? The letters I would eventually receive from the girls I'd left behind. Fifty years later, there's a broken-down black metal footlocker stacked over with cardboard boxes filled with decades of memorabilia in the back of a basement storage room. The footlocker bears a half-dozen pieces of masking tape with my dad's fading handwriting barely legible. The inscription, Bell Enyart, Jr. That stationary box, still there, still flush left of the lift-out shelf. More cluttered today, but it still holds black-and-white photos of smiling high school faces. Someday, someone will throw the broken old footlocker 
with its photos of no longer known faces in a dumpster. The blue Air Force saucer hat, blue uniform belt, and tie will follow. But not today. Today.